Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour, out of CIUT 89.5 FM, or on many much-appreciated community radio stations around Canada. And I am David Franklin Irwin Hostetter. I'm Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Elizabeth Corlator. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. And we got Stefan interviewing two councillors in and around Halifax. Halifax Regional Councillors, exactly. who are working on a climate plan for the region. Uh, the climate plan has, has been completed, yes. It's already been completed. They're working on the budget right now, and you're talking about their, their climate plan. Yes, with Way Mason and Sam Austin. Way Mason and Sam Austin, both councillors for the region. And is that a good discussion? It's a great discussion. Nice. And then we're going to do a segment of climate news. Uh, but before, before that, uh, Stefan is going to talk about the climate plan in Halifax and how he believes it relates to Toronto. But also, I just wanted to mention, Lauren, a couple of weeks ago, you had seen that documentary about those animals, and you were like, why is there no, is there a documentary that has any good news about animals? And I've been meaning to mention, meaning to mention for a couple of weeks now, I keep forgetting, but there was one article, this one biologist or photographer or some kind of oceanographer dude in the Guardian, Philip Hoare saw a bunch of whales, fin whales, or at least a thousand fin whales, in a small area off the coast of the UK, I believe. There were also blue whales and humpback whales, and his mind was blown. He's been doing this for a long time, and he was like, look at all these whales. It's amazing to see even one of them. There are th- there's over a thousand of them, and they had a lot of them had, were, were disappeared because they had all been killed. And here we have a bunch of them together again. So there are whales. There are whales that have returned and seem to be doing pretty well given the circumstances in that area. Well, that's nice because last week I read a really bummer article about how manatees are undergoing mass starvation. So what? Manatees were definitely one of my top like three or four animals growing up. So that's a real rough thing to learn. How could you not love them? They're so cute. They move slow. They look like big gray blob babies. They're precious. Yeah, so you can feel good about the whales and support the manatees. And if you want to... I have absolutely no way to segue, so I'm just going to segue. In the conversation that I have, uh, that you'll hear in a bit, uh, with Way Mason and Sam Austin, their plan... Uh, you know, it was a solid one. They've been working on it for a couple of years. I think Lauren even noted before the show that we talked about their plan when it was released in the first place. And it's it's you know it it includes things like a a carbon budget to hold themselves accountable and all the stuff like that. And I couldn't help but reflecting in this conversation about the experience of being here in Toronto and working with environmental groups here, trying to push cities. And I think it's something that to look look out for across. Uh, any municipality and really any government, I think municipalities especially, I think probably fall prey to this because of the way that our system is set up, which is that, you know, there are hundreds and thousands of, of really dedicated people who've worked on the climate plan here in Toronto, the, you know, the people, the city are, you know, really do want this to work and have created a great plan. And it's a, you know, it is a summation and I think a culmination of a bunch of work. And the budget here in Toronto is going in, I believe, when we record this on Friday, it will have come into the council yesterday on Thursday, and then may have been passed or maybe pushed to next week. But what's been frustrating 
is that each time we successfully advocate and push for a ramping up of ambition, which has successfully happened a couple times, the Climate Emergency Act, uh, Declaration in 2019 was used as a way to ramp up amb- ambition here in Toronto, and there's been a lot of great advocacy you know, from outside organizations, uh, you know, pushing the city to do, to do better. And, and then again, the city has taken that up and, and taken that mantle and the city staff have taken that mantle to move forward. And yet, at the same time, all of this ambition is being met at the same time with a complete refusal to fund it. And so the city has had a huge backlog of staff positions they haven't hired for. There's a We're in a cr- cash crunch situation where we haven't raised any new revenue really at all over the past something like 10 years. And that means that as inflation increases, kind of like the, we, we, what we're experiencing is minor, minor cuts across the board over and over and over again. And huge, and then occasionally we decide to spend an insane amount of money on things like protecting the aging highway, which I will leave, but it is a mistake. But where I'm stuck on is that the councillors out in Halifax deserve a huge amount of kudos for actually willing to raise the revenue to fund their project uh, and, and to fund this climate plan and the other work. In the interview they themselves, they talk about how telling the city staff that they're actually going to be able to raise money and give them more money to do the work allows the city staff to not see the climate actions as a threat to how will, how will we do this if you have to spend next to 15% to try to reduce emissions or whatever, but actually as an opportunity to do more. And so the fact that, you know, and allowing yourself to sort of put yourself out there as a politician to be like, no, society, if you want this good thing, we need to find a way to pay for it, means that then not only do you actually get a plan that will work and move forward, but it also means that the city staff, the people who are working on it, will then get behind it much more fulsomely because they don't see it as a threat, is very striking to me. And I just wish that more municipal councillors both here in Toronto and you know across the uh, the across the this, these this so-called Canada and particularly our mayor here John Tory would actually accept the what will certainly be some blowback from an attempt to raise money however we can't we live in a society that requires money if you were a business you would never say well we're going to bring in all these new tech things we'll do but without any new revenue. Revenue is what drives action. And so kudos. That's all I'm going to say. It's, it's, it's a rare t- treat, I think, to be uh, to talk to some counselors who actually have enough backbone to push for something that they know might not be loved by their whole constituency, but they believe in it and they will work for it and they will you know get real results because of it. And so, you know, we have an election coming up here in, I believe, October. And I hope the councillors running will sort of take this uh, and see that people want change and are willing to pay for it. So kudos to them. You're talking about taxes. In this case, yes, they're raising taxes. But you could do it other ways. You know, you could bring back a vehicle registration fee or like there's hundreds of ways you could find to raise revenue. But funding to police and funnel it into climate action. Exactly. For instance. Yeah, I don't know. That's, that's what I hope they do in Ottawa. That's definitely not what they're going to do, but it's what I hope they'll do. <laughs> I mean, you know, I feel like you could have dramatically fewer police and still have the convoy. So, you know, I think you're make a solid argument. Yeah. Right. No, I was I was down 
not even downtown. I was down the street the other day. I live about a kilometer away from where all the action's happening. And we all know, everybody knows who's been like listening and paying attention and watching the news that the police aren't doing anything in Ottawa and it's really infuriating and everybody's so mad all the time about it. Um, and I was at Chopper's Drug Mart um, buying my partner a bunch of chocolate milk and, um, and some poor guy was in the process of stealing a few bottles of cheap perfume. I didn't give a, who cares? I don't care. I don't, it's Galen Weston's money. I really could not care less. Anyway, the staff did, the staff called the police and seven police officers showed up to arrest one man who had stolen a couple bottles of perfume. Meanwhile, there's like a couple thousand yahoos just up the block with their gazillions of trucks and their hot tubs and their barbecues and their horns blaring. And they're like, anyway, I'm so mad and I'm so tired and I'm so sorry. I don't have anything fruitful to add to this conversation. The concert on that Friday was the thing that blew my mind. I was like, you actively allowed them to build a soundstage. There was a sauna down here at one point. They built a sauna. They had a sauna and a hot tub. They had a day spa. Anyway, it's just the audacity, the gall, the continued neglect on the part of the police service and our mayor. So yeah, that's another reason. Get to the freaking polls in October. No matter where you live, municipal politics matter. October 22nd, do it. All right, let's uh, let's dive into the news. This I don't we don't dive in. I don't I don't, I don't feel that I dive in. We do. We immerse ourselves in it for for That's 10 true. to 15 minutes once a week. We are news people. Diving, though, is the diving the right word? I don't know. If you give me a new word, I'll use a new word. Well, you don't have to use the same word every week. All right, fine. I'll come up with a new word next week. Tune in to hear what that word it's is. It's going to be just as atrocious. <laughs> Now to uh, wade cautiously into the news uh, here on the Green Majority, climate news. So recent data, we love data at the Green Majority. We just crunch numbers all week long and then present this uh, sausage of, of beauty every Friday and grill that thing on just a greased and oiled wrought iron stove undergirded by the uh, glorious fumes of fossil fuel energy. You're really diving into this one. I'm diving into these metaphors. Uh, my apologies. So re- recent data, seriously though, with the data, recent data, this was published by the European Environment Agency. So it's real data, official data, shows that extreme weather has cost Europe between 90 and 142,000 lives and around 500 billion euros over the past 40 years. The deaths uh, mostly came from heat waves, and the economic losses have mostly come from floods and storms. The losses, however, have not been obviously increasing, which uh, some researchers are attributing to climate adaptation measures. Uh, New research published in the journal Nature Climate Change is showing that the mega drought that has persisted throughout southwestern North America for the past 22 years 
is the worst drought the region has had since the year 800. They determined that this they determined this by measuring the size of tree rings. So I guess if you can te- you can tell the moisture in the soil, what were the moisture what the soil what what how much moisture there was in the soil uh, conceivably like 1200 years ago by the size of the tree ring. Um, and the scientists claim that around 19% of this drought is attributable to human-caused climate change. So the abstract for the study, which was the only thing I was able to read without paying them money, uh, says that 19 said 19% of the drought is attributable to human is attributable to human-caused climate change. But the other articles that I read that commented on the study said 42% was attributable to human-caused climate change. So I don't understand why there would be that discrepancy because if it is 42%, the abstract would say that. So I don't know why the articles are saying 42%. Um, but the abstract said 19% of the severity was attributed to, cl- to human anthropogenic uh, causes. Uh, but the Los Angeles Times quotes the study's lead author, Park Williams, as saying that many people in the West may not feel like they're living through a mega drought because we have all these buffers in our system now, like groundwater and large reservoirs. But we're utilizing those backstops so rapidly right now that we're at real risk of those backstops not being there for us in 10 or 20 years when, potentially, he uh, hypothesizes, either this event may still not have ended or when the next mega drought may have already begun. But who knows? Uh, There has been an oddly fast rise in methane in the atmosphere since 2007, leading scientists to speculate that global warming itself may be causing this rise, which would mean that warming is already compounding itself. Methane in the atmosphere last year reached a level almost triple that of the pre-industrial era. A recent study published in Environmental Research Letters argues that keeping global warming under 1.5 degrees Celsius will require focusing a lot more on methane emissions than we currently are. Methane stays in the atmosphere for only around 12 years, but it warms the planet much more intensely in that time than carbon dioxide. The study critiques the Environmental Protection Agency in the U.S. for measuring the impacts of a greenhouse gas over a 100-year period. So over 100-year period, methane is 28 times more powerful at warming the planet than carbon dioxide. But if we look at a 20-year period which makes more sense given the time frame we have to deal with the crisis, methane is 81 times more powerful than carbon dioxide. Phil McKenna emphasizes for Inside Climate News that carbon dioxide remains the most important greenhouse gas, but we need to pay more attention to methane in order to have a chance at the 1.5 degrees Celsius target. Yeah, so a quick note here about methane. To say A that if this is in fact methane leaking from the earth due to melting permafrost or other types of feedback loops yeah it's also like little tiny little organisms being exposed all this different stuff swamps etc etc methane comes from all these different sources it's all over the place but if that is the case this is very bad news but i haven't you know dug into the study to see what the methodology of this particular study was and so i'm instead going to pivot to a slightly less drastic but i think equally important and much more in our control thing to pay attention to which is that we've covered this before a little bit but there are a litany of reports that have been published over the years about how truly the awful the oil industry is at accurately reporting its methane emissions. 
multiple different reports have shown that the industry and regulators repeatedly underestimate emissions during the extraction of both oil and natural gas. Some Canadian reports have found that emissions are 1.5 times higher than believed, and the EPA has found that in oil and gas, it's as much as 90% higher. So you can imagine what that impact of this undercounting might be if that's extrapolated to the whole world. And so if you, you know, if you, if, if, what, if, if what we're looking here at here is what we'd expect the whole world to be emitting, and every single place they're extracting oil is massively underestimating it, then that could at least explain some of this, where this rise is coming from. Well, they're also bad at reporting their CO2 emissions, too. So. Oh, yeah. Oil industry, not great. Really, really, anytime you ask an industry to self-report the bad things it's putting in the atmosphere, almost certainly a terrible idea. I don't know why anybody's ever surprised at that. If you ask anybody to self-report anything, it doesn't go well. If you ask an <laughs> eight-year-old to self-report on like, did you clean your teeth for two minutes before bed? They'll say yes, and you know they didn't. Anyway, self-reporting is never a good idea. That's why regulations are important. But no, I just wanted to sort of say, before we get a bunch of people emailing us being like, why don't you talk about um, methane emissions from factory farming? Yes, that's a big deal. That's a problem. Theoretically, if more white people who lived in the GTA started eating more vegetables and less meat, that would be very good. Yes. I don't think anybody has ever said that, that that's not a good idea. It's just that there are lots of different ways to reduce emissions from the industrial farming industry. Reducing meat consumption is one of them. That's not a blanket solution. That doesn't work for every community. That doesn't work for every region. And it's also really, 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 really hard to speak to people and to encourage them to reduce their meat consumption in a way that doesn't feel like a personal attack, because in a lot of ways it is a personal attack. So anyway, I just, I know we're going to get comments about it and I know people are going to be like, why don't you talk about it more? And it's like, because it's really hard and really nuanced. So that's why. Yeah. Um, Sorry. No, I was going to say a request to the three of us from me, um, can we do a happy episode sometime soon? This oh. is just like, oh boy, this is just like, I feel like I'm getting punched yes. in the face. Let's just try like, Let's, I know we tried to do it not that long ago. I feel like we didn't give it a college try. Let's do like, let's, let's not even do like a bunch of stories. Let's each pick. We each get one story. We each find one good news story and we do a deep dive into it. And we hey, just like drench ourselves in good news. I'm into it. Let's do it. I mentioned the I mentioned the beautiful humpback whales and immediately you're like, yes, but the manatees are starving in Florida. I mean, come on. <laughs> and I promise not to do that during our good news episode. Right. Against yeah. the rules of the good news episode. I, I like the idea of the would be like if y'all support the idea of a good news episode, we can try to make that a repeatable thing. Let us know. Hit us up on the socials. I will say in the opposite of good news episodes, factory farming is super bad uh, and super depressing. Ugh. What is the point of that comment? Factory farming is depressing. I mean, spent some time really looking into it at one point. It's awful. I just wanted to say that it, it is sort of a converse thing to like being it being difficult to get people to stop eating so much meat. Also, there was there was a there was a scientific article about methane emissions as well, which I did not cite because it 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 was essentially written from the perspective that there is some sort of global body that has authority over. Uh, fossil fuel emissions worldwide, right? As if there is some moral authority that has, uh, conversely, uh, over people over people's dietary habits, because it was it was it was saying that like there are, there are super ultra they said like ultra emitters of methane, and it located these 
particular oil fields in the U.S. And there was also like Iran, Kazakhstan, some other countries. And they were like, these are the places where a whole bunch of methane is being like uh, released from these particular oil fields. And that's where we need to focus. But in, in reality, there's really no way to focus on those particular places because they're they're in different countries and they have vastly different political systems and it's like what is the point of saying that these are the the places to tackle if there's no way to tackle those places but it's sort of a similar point to, to like we can't just convince people to eat less meat to protect the methane it's like these are the meg these are the ultra emitters but what are we supposed to do with this information i feel like the one in the states could probably be dealt with well, more effectively from our, from our, but not necessarily from the UN though. Like, sure, yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, who's gonna do it? Joe Biden? I mean, no. <laughs> that was so sad, but it's like, no. There was like about twenty seconds where we thought maybe. Yeah. Twenty seconds is over. <laughs> <laughs> so, continuing with the news. Let's dive in. I'm cautiously wading into the news. Okay. Though. I'm dumping the news from a bucket onto your chest. Oh, great. Thanks. Yes. Pun intended. I don't know if I get the pun. No, there was no pun. There was an insinuation. I'll cut that. <laughs> so, uh, Bloomberg, <laughs> Bloomberg News um, reports of a great climate backslide. Yeah, I know. Speaking of the dumping that has begun since new climate promises were made by governments last year. So major banks are pouring money into fossil fuels, uh, clean energy stocks are going down, and emissions are still rising, even though, quote, renewable energy costs have fallen rapidly and investment in clean technologies is soaring, while voters across the world demand stronger action. Um, who are these voters? I don't know. So, the, but also moving on, the United Kingdom recently approved a new oil and gas field off the coast of Scotland and has plans to approve six of these in the North Sea. The energy mix points out that UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson said several months ago, uh, just a few months ago, that we had to defuse the climate bomb. He said this at COP26. And the UK Green Party is saying that these new oil fields will torpedo Britain's climate action. Uh, the German climate group Perspectives, Perspectives Climate Group, has put out a case study on Export Development Canada, which is the official Canadian export credit agency. And here are some of the study's key messages, which I think we've probably, I mean, maybe this is redundant, but it's redundant and technical, but I'm still going to say it anyway. They say, one, the most heavyweight reason by why Export Development Canada is not in line with the objectives of the Paris Agreement is its continued domestic support for Canadian fossil fuels despite the recent milestone commitments of ending international support for new and unabated fossil fuel projects made at COP26 by Canada, uh, the Export Development Canada's commitment to quote-unquote net zero by 2050, as well as mandate letters to develop a plan to phase out public finance for the fossil fuel sector, there is no concrete timeline to end any of this support. Two, the official exclusion policy for fossil fuels only applies to thermal coal, but metallurgical coal, another high-carbon-intensive and important Canadian export good used in the steel industry, is continuously supported through Export Development Canada's mining sector portfolio. Three, carbon-intensive activities accounted for 26% of Export Development Canada's business portfolio at the end of 2020, 
for a total value of 16 billion US dollars. Uh, four, support for quote-unquote clean tech activities, which is the Canadian label, they say, for climate or sustainability-related activities, was small compared to fossil fuel-related support, standing at about $2.3 billion U.S. per year. Uh, and total portfolio exposure is not reported for clean tech. Why am I saying total portfolio exposure when I have no idea what it means? Just reading from the from the goddamn study. I think, do you, I think, no, think about it. You know what total portfolio exposure means. Just think about the words in your head. Yeah, the portfolio is exposed to clean tech. Is is exposed totally. <laughs> <laughs> the entirety of the over the portfolio uh, exposure for clean tech is is uh, not reported. So they're not they're not even saying how much clean tech they're giving and how much money they're giving to clean tech and there's no definition of clean tech. Uh, and then they note that negative emissions technologies like carbon capture and storage are considered clean tech. Um, and while there are reasons to justify carbon capture and storage, uh, it's also misleading to call them clean tech because they can lead to the prolonging of fossil fuel infrastructure and uh, to spurring fossil fuel demand. And finally, the Export Development Canada reports... Uh, so the Export Development Canada is currently reporting operational emissions, which are scopes one and two, and it made a commitment to disclose its portfolio-related emissions, which this uh, report is calling its scope three emissions, um, under the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials by the end of 2024. In 2021, Export Development Canada also committed to reducing scope one and two emissions to net zero by 2030 and scope three emissions, its portfolio emissions, to net zero by 2050. But concerns with the current definition of net zero uh, are persisting, particularly regarding the contribution of carbon capture and storage, as well as the trajectory of achieving the target. So who knows what net zero means if we're using carbon capture and storage and if we don't really know how we're getting there. Um, I'll continue. The International Institute for Sustainable Development has put out a new report showing that Canadian provinces and territories provide more subsidies to fossil fuels than the federal government does, which spurs production while sucking money out of governments that could be getting more revenue in taxes and royalties from the industry. Alberta spent $1.3 billion last year, BC spent $765 million, Saskatchewan spent $409 million, and Newfoundland and Labrador spent $82.6 million. And Newfoundland and Labrador recently uh, restructured, I guess, their royalties, so now the province is asking less money from fossil fuel companies for allowing them to take the resource. And finally, Doug Ford's Ontario is being sued for tens of millions of dollars by investors who had bought in to the province's cap-and-trade program, if you remember that, when it was cancelled by Doug Ford's government four years ago. So now, four years later, they started being sued last year, they're still being sued. Uh, the Energy Mix reported at the time that warnings from all sides were telling the government that cancelling it would cost, uh, could cost $4 billion. The program had already raked in almost $3 billion for the province only two years after it was instituted by Kathleen Wynne who I'm now missing quite a lot, actually, Miss Kathleen Wynne. Yeah, I mean, so to go back to that EDC bit, what I find so frustrating... Export Development Canada. Export Development Canada. 
what I find so frustrating about this ongoing failure, uh, which daily, diligent listeners will rem- remember is a frequent point of contention for us on the show. I think we've talked about Export Development Canada more in the last like two years than I ever had in my entire life. Just in the past five that. months, it's been like... Yeah, it keeps coming back. Um, is the ways that we just seem so dedicated and determined to undo any of the good work that we are that we do anywhere else. Like the federal government last week released a new framework on climate finance and or climate support, which policy watchers are calling a solid improvement on previous versions. And in that policy, it includes twenty percent of it of the money for a coal phase out. Yet here, as you just reported, the, in Export Development Canada is funding coal. And yes, it's metallur- metallurgical coal, which is harder to phase out. But still, time and time again, our governments seem to want to have their cake and eat it too. And that's exactly the kind of thinking that creates and leads to that climate backsliding that Bloomberg reported on. But anyways. This isn't necessarily like a, an I told you so situation, but just going back to the stories about how like, Bloomberg reporting the great climate backslide and the UK approving the new oil and gas field off Scotland. And then the stuff with, with, with EDC kind of like not actually like delivering the goods on, on their commitments um, around coal. This is one of those things that everybody said to watch for coming out of COP because this past, like back in November, people remember I was whining about it in December was, was the fact that COP was, sort of characterized by all of these big flashy announcements. Everybody took the stage, leaders from various countries, various like environment ministers, Gibo, Trudeau, yada, yada, yada. They were all up there making these big, beautiful pledges that weren't necessarily being reflected in negotiation text and weren't necessarily reflected in any sort of domestic policy. And this is why everybody said, like, watch those promises, because what we're seeing here is exactly what everybody was worried about, which is the proof that those were, in fact, just promises, because everybody likes to make a good showing at the party, which is to some degree, like, unfortunately, an aspect of COP is that a lot of it sometimes feels like smoke and mirrors on behalf of these countries in order to, like, distract from their actual bad behavior. It's the opportunity for them to come out and say, Canada's back. Don't worry, guys, we've got this covered. We're such a good climate actor. Meanwhile, our domestic policy back home is like lagging. So that's all. It's not even an I told you so, because like we all knew this was going to be the case. I don't think there were any listeners back home saying, Lauren, you're being cynical. Give them a break. No, we all knew this is what was going to happen. Yeah. And so I, I will only end with one thought, which is that I th- we can start off if we commit to our March 4th being our positive episode that means we can have back-to-back positive episodes because on the 11th we're doing our just transition episode about all the actions that are happening across the country on march 12th so we can start march on a completely positive note for the first half let's do it let's do it kick off that new quarter right march is the beginning of a new technically quarter let's do that right move into a new season new attitude we're spring cleaning our brains and it's gonna be great yeah. If you have any positive stories, send them to us. We'll cover any positive story that you send to us that's within reason. I saw a gorgeous, a gorgeous raccoon the other day. And I will a report beautiful pigeon landed near it, and I knew that they were friends. Okay, but sometimes those are nice. Like, you'll see a video <laughs> on TikTok of, like, a fox and a badger, like, looking at each other as they walk down an urban tunnel together anyway. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'll take it. Okay. <laughs> So now we'll go to another music break and return with Stefan's interview with Way Mason and Sam Austin, Halifax Regional Councillors. 
about Halifax's climate plan. Thank you so much. We are back uh, as previewed earlier with a great interview with Way Mason and Sam Austin, who are Halifax Regional Councillors. And I want to give a shout out to our listeners uh, out in Nova Scotia who actually set this up. So I really appreciate that. And welcome, Way and Sam. Hey. Hi, happy to be here. Awesome. And so by way of introduction, can you just give our listeners a quick background on yourselves and how you found yourself on council? Maybe we'll start with you, Wei, and then go to Sam. So my background is I used to run music festivals and manage bands. And I actually was a sales manager at CKU and did a show there for eight years, which is the college radio station, campus community radio station in Halifax. I started teaching at the community college in their music business program. And around that time, Halifax was really falling apart politically. We, we had a mayor who ended up in David Meslin's book about the worst mayors in Canada. We had the concert scandal where money was being kited without council's approval by, by the mayor and CAO to pay for Paul McCartney to be in concerts. And so weirdly, my politics came from being like the only person not working for any of the companies involved with the concert scandal. And then the CBC and some other local media kept me around to just keep commenting about municipal stuff, which is great, but it was so bad. I ended up being compelled to run and I got elected in 2012. Yeah. And so I ran in 2012 for the first time too. And Coming from a similar sort of place, there was a lot of anger at council. We were also thinking about some pretty big picture stuff in terms of regional plan and how the city was going to grow. And I'm an urban planner, and so that's uh, very much a passion area for me. So I ran in 2012 for the first time and came second out of a large field against an incumbent, the kind of Hazel McCallum of Dartmouth, Gloria McCluskey, and everyone kind of knew that she would be retiring uh, next time around. And so then I basically was set, set myself up for a four-year campaign and was successful in 2016 and coming into the, into the seat in Dartmouth. Awesome. I feel like we have a whole interview about both of those, but I guess we have to get into the climate piece because that's the purpose of the show. I know that part of the reason we were connected is that Halifax is working on a climate plan. Y'all are in budget season right now. And for our listeners who may not know that too much about Halifax regional politics, how far has Halifax gotten with its climate plan? And, and sort of what has the path been to get here? Yeah, so it has been a multi-year effort to get to this point. Halifax has a very ambitious climate change plan, and it's not just a municipal plan, it's a community plan, looking at our emissions across our whole municipality, both municipally and in the community. And it's called Halifax, and it's uh, won some awards. It's well-regarded, got a lot of attention, and we passed that in, council approved that just before our last municipal election in 2020 in the midst of the pandemic. And so where we are now is we've had the, we've done the big visionary plan and now we have to implement it, which becomes the even harder piece, right? Just getting past the point of identifying what we need to do, then trying to actually get to, to the doing. It's funny, you know, like Sam said that he got elected in part because people, he's passionate about planning and people had, had concerns. And so 
all of these things tie together when you're talking about municipal politics, right? We don't want to sprawl. When I got elected, it was all about how we were just growing out farther and farther and farther car auto dependent sprawl. How do we change that? How do we protect wetlands? How do we uh, protect forests? Where are we going to allow growth that's smart and not allow it? And, and all of these pieces have been coming forward through all of our planning processes for these 10 years, culminating in the green network plan, which is about protecting green space and, and, and the, the environment, the nature, right? And then the Halifax plan, which has the ambitious goal of getting us to be net carbon zero neutral and as a community. And it was a lot of work to get to the point that we had that in front of council, but I think it did it pass unanimously, Sam. I feel like it did. Yeah. But Sam and I and a couple others on council who were really, really, really deeply engaged with this were like, okay, now we have to pay for it. Yeah. It's interesting how directly that dovetails with my experience of watching the Toronto process in how much, like the plan is great. And then the funding, it becomes sort of a feeling like a wall of obfuscation where they can keep calling it fully funded and yet somehow no more money shows up. But you're more sort of on the inside and, and sort of working out to push for action in Halifax. What particular challenges have you come up against, maybe both in the planning, but then especially sort of in this next phase of implementation? Yeah, so uh, I mean, in the planning piece, there seemed to, I, I don't recall there being a whole lot of challenges. There was a pretty broad acceptance. And I think some of that goes to what Wei was saying about, we've been talking about big picture planning and HRM um, now for several years running. We have a lot of big plans in place for integrated mobility green network. So I think the planning piece was pretty solid. The part that it looms large is that implementation, right? Because basically we signed on to a visionary document, but the exact details of how we were going to do things, how things are going to cost, when they were going to be done, they weren't in there. And it's very easy to get people to sign on for the visionary. It's harder when it comes down to the sacrifice in any given year. Well, what sort of tax increase am I going to ask my residents for to bear and explain to them why? That becomes a lot harder. And then we have some challenges internally in the bureaucracy because there's also a key part of our plan is actually fixing our own municipal operations. And there's a whole cultural shift there that has to go into things like, well, we need our fleet vehicles to be, you know, we need them to be electric. We need our operations to actually come along as well. The line I've been using for years is you can't live next to the ocean and disbelieve climate change, which is mostly true. There are still like the one in 10 people who think the earth is flat and, and don't think climate change is happening. But, you know, the frequency with which we're getting major storms that cause damage to roads and buildings, the uh, increased risk of having hurricanes hit the coast, which never would happen. We're seeing that literally every day. We're having a snowstorm as this is being reported. It was, we had the warmest day on record for a February 13th yesterday and the temperature swung 20 degrees and now we're in a snowstorm. So for the most part, I think people accept something needs to be done. And I'm going to generalize really horribly here, but I think truthfully, progressive politicians, especially at the municipal level, make plans and expect to do the plans. And kind of more populist and conservative politicians make plans so they can pat themselves on the back and don't even plan on doing a lot of the plans. And we've seen that historically. That was what I ran against. Halifax had beautiful plans all through the 90s and 2000s that they never did anything with because it would cost money. So I do wonder sometimes if the reason we got a unanimous vote was because a lot of folks, even then on council in 2020, figured we'd never actually fund it. But here we are like deep in the grips of this budget 
and we have a majority on council who are fighting every step of the way to make sure that it does get fully funded, which means there will be a tax increase associated with that. Wow. I, that is actually inspiring. What I've seen here in Toronto is similar great plans and then just not that kind of follow through to actually put the revenue tools in place to to get the work really done. And so I'm curious if during your time putting this together and now your information time, if you've been connecting with other cities and or, or regional areas about best practices and any types of things that like what works really well for a city to move forward uh, on climate action. Honestly, you know, I think that as politicians, we talk to other councillors and other municipalities at uh, Federation of Canadian Municipalities or provincial meetings. But in this case, I, I really feel this was a, a homegrown effort. Certainly the environmentalists who were supporting the activity of the massive public consultation that went into it and our own staff are, are talking to people across the country all the time. But in terms of the plan, I can't say there was anything else to look at that approach it like we did. Like the, Edmonton kind of has this, right? Once you establish a carbon budget and say, we have to hit these points to come down to zero, then, you know, things change. So yeah, I think once you have a carbon budget, the, the thing that we've been doing is saying to people who are skeptical or saying, maybe now's not the time, maybe tax increase because we're recovering from COVID and inflation is bad, all those things, you know, we're not focused so much on the money and the end, it's the output. Right? Are we going to hit our carbon budget? So Sam did some things like come back and tell us every business unit during budget what you're doing to meet your Halifax goals. And I put in a motion saying, I want all staff reports by next summer to be saying, like Edmonton did, it's inspired by their move. How does this impact our carbon budget? Because when Edmonton did that, they found that you know they, their goal was net zero by 2030. And they were going to entirely consume their carbon budget in like two years, three years, and never get to 2030. So. Yeah, we did have that conversation with a former Edmonton councillor. I know Way has been active in the Nova Scotia Federation of Municipalities for a number of years, but it really, it was a locally kind of politically driven process. The challenge that kind of Way was touching on there, uh, and it's one that like I've been worried about through our budget discussions, it's been the kind of the twofold thing. Do we have the political will on council to actually to, to commit to it? And so far, so good. And then at a staff level, right? Because a municipal staff in a and and at the at the municipal level, your your civil service bureaucracy is very very influential. I would I would argue probably even more so than at the federal or provincial because the political angle, the political side of it is power is more diffused. And so trying to make sure that our senior staff, that it wasn't just the good folks working on this and our planning and environment unit that were committed to it, but that it's something that is feeding down to all the other business units so that everyone doesn't feel like, oh, that's something that planning and development's dealing with, that they feel that, no, this is my core responsibility and I'm going to be judged on this by council and the chief administrative officer if I don't deliver. I think, if I may, I think also seeing council consistently vote after rigorous debate that yes, we're going to give you more money has helped staff support it because previously what staff are hearing is we want you to do this other very expensive thing and I, they're already 
already under-resourced. They already feel like we're not giving them enough money to do what they're already supposed to be doing. And now we want them to take away 5, 10, 15% of their budget for the environment. But when, when council starts to say, no, we're going to add a 3% tax increase to help facilitate meeting our carbon budget, I think that started to allow staff to relax a little bit into how are we going to achieve them? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And honestly, I'm amazed that you actually have a carbon budget built into this because that seems like such an obvious, like necessary step to be able to count backwards. Like, okay, we're doing about this. And so it's like backwards, but I think it's, and a really good way to hold yourself accountable because you're able to then compare yourself every year to whether or not you've hit that. And yet I think that maybe in part because it's such a useful tool to hold yourself accountable, a lot of municipalities have avoided adding it because they don't want to be held accountable in the long run. They want to be able to sort of always be like, no, no, our goal is 2040. So it's still so far out yet. It's like, no, no, here's our budget. Here's the timelines. Let's make this work. If, if I but- may on our, on our carbon budget, it's actually, it's a very aggressive one too, because part of what the Halifax report came back and said, and sometimes this becomes a challenge locally because our wealth is not evenly spread, but the report basically says, you are a wealthy city and a wealthy country. You have the means to actually pull your weight very, you know, more so than some of the poorer uh, places around the world. So you have an obligation to actually meet a higher threshold. And so that's what we're working towards is that target. That's amazing. So for those uh, folks who are, say, activists across Canada, because, you know, we do get syndicated across Canada, who might be looking to push for their regional municipality or regional government or however it is to take these kind of actions, to get this climate action that you're championing, what advice would you give for people on the outside sort of pushing people like yourselves or your counselors to get real action? So I think advice for activists across the country, I mean, is to, especially at the local political level where there are party systems in most municipalities is well, what really drives decisions at council, what really can make a difference is regular and repeated contact with constituents. It doesn't necessarily take a whole lot of feedback to move someone who might be wavering on something on council in, in one way or the other, if they're actually hearing from their constituents. And I'm not talking a form letter blast to everybody on council, but like people respond in writing to their local representative in their own words. It's highly influential when you get a volume of correspondence like that from the people you represent. Yeah, I think having parks organizations, trails organizations, people who are prominent in PTAs and home and schools, the homeowners associations, and any group that can mobilize a lot of people in routine and persistent contact and everyday citizens in routine and persistent contact and not, you know, the a plan at this point when we're so close to 2030 isn't good enough. It has to be a plan that is resourced and has a carbon budget and is going to achieve goals in a very rapid order. And, you know, what, what we saw here is that I would argue our one, our one misstep as a community was Halifax passed right before the election. And it wasn't really an election issue. The environmental side was like, well, the plan is passed and we're going to do it. And what that meant is we also had seven new councillors out of 16, almost half of our councillors are brand new. So we had to spend a year getting them up to speed and, and educating them on what it is and why we think a tax increase is worth it at this point is, is needed. And so I, I would say no matter what gains you've made on any of these kind of progressive planning policies and environmental stuff, you've got to be out there reinforcing these foundational ideas every election 
and endorsing candidates who are good, saying they're going to do it, or at least informing so that you don't lose ground. Because I, I feel like we've, that's a lot of the time we spent the last while is getting people up to speed on something that I think a lot of the, especially the activist community thought, all right, that's, we're done washing our hands of that next thing. And then, no, it's a constant uh, refresh with the political uh, folks, the elected folks to make sure they know what is expected of them for this. That makes all the sense. And I know y'all have a hard stop very quickly. So I want to give you one last question, which is just if folks want to stay up to date on how this is moving forward and how can they do that? And then also if you have any sort of last thoughts to share with our general listenership. Yeah. So, I mean, I, both Councillor Mason and I, we run very prolific blogs of whatever's going on um, on council. And I know Councillor Mason's written about this I as well. So there, there is that HRM part of, of course, the accountability piece and having a climate budget for our carbon is there's an annual progress report. So it's not one of these plans that can go on a shelf and then be forgotten about. Uh, it, there's a report each and every year that's coming through our environment community and then on the council that says, well, how, how are we doing? And the one we got just now was, well, you're doing okay in a few areas, but a lot of this isn't resourced and isn't started yet. So if you're serious about it, you need to get moving. So that, which brings us to this year's budget cycle. So uh, a couple of different ways right there. Yeah, I, I, I feel that it's important to build relationships with the staff that are championing this and to make sure that they are defended. Because one of the things that happens is once the ground starts to shift, you see a lot of established managers and senior leaders feeling like they're being circumvented because a whole bunch of new policy and a whole new direction is coming in. And I think it's fair to say we've heard that, we've seen that here. And, you know, it's really important to not lose momentum. We don't have any time. We have eight years to hit the Paris goals, right? Like we just don't have any time and we in fact need to go faster than any of us that we would. So making sure you have the right staff in place, making sure that there is a penalty for politicians and for leaders who don't actually follow through on the promises, you know, that's all a big part of it. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Way Mason and Sam Austin, Halifax Regional City Councils for joining us. Good luck and Godspeed.